our series, This Is Us. And uh, <clears throat> I think the best way to, to, to wind up this series is by taking a review of the last six weeks quickly. <clears throat> I'd like you uh, to take a look once again at our purpose statement, our mission statement, and I'd like you to read it out loud with me. Would you please? Let's begin. People helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. Now, remember how we broke that down. People helping people. That's who we are, okay? That's ordinary people helping other ordinary people to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Grow generations of, this is how we want to act or live. Focusing on growing every generation, but especially the youngest generation in the family because their roots, their spiritual roots aren't very deep yet. And then Christ-led influencers, this is what we want to accomplish. Influencing our culture with the compassion and the character of Christ, being led by him. So that, that's our, our purpose statement, our mission statement. Here, then, are our five values. I'm going to ask you to repeat these out, out loud with me, too. And the reason I'm asking you to do that is because I want these to become ingrained. I want these to stick in our minds and in our hearts. I want us to know who we are. I mean, the series is, this is us. And so I want, to know, I want us to know who we are. Okay, here we go. We live like God owns everything. <clears throat> we mentor across generations. We think like everyday missionaries. We tell life-changing faith stories. We create fun, refreshing experiences. Now, when you came in this morning, I suspect you received one of these cards. On the one side is our mission or purpose statement. On the back side are the five values that we've been talking about over these last few weeks. Don't just toss this card when the service is over, okay? Please, take this home with you. Put it on a bulletin board that you have at home. Put it on your refrigerator at home. Uh, use it as a bookmark. And so every time you pick up the book you're reading, you'll be reminded of who this is and who we are. <clears throat> Put it by the door that you go in and out of most frequently because it will remind you this is who we are as a family. And I think it's important to be reminded because when we aren't reminded, we tend to forget and, uh, and we don't want to forget that. Uh, now, the three people that were in the video this morning told you why being a part of this family is important to them. And all three of them came from different sites. Uh, one was from East, one was from West, and one was uh, from Bedford. And, uh, and I'm excited that they feel so much here at home, and we hope that you'll feel that way as well. And you say, well, is there a passage of Scripture that really fits what we've been talking about? Well, there are lots of passages that really fit. I mean, this, these aren't based on just one single passage. I mean, this is really what we believe God is teaching us to be as a congregation. But there is a passage I want to take you to this morning, uh, Romans chapter 12, because I think not only is it a great summary of, of what this is and what we've been talking about, it is also a great way to tell us what the church should be so that you can say, I think I'd like to be a part of that church family. Now, uh, We've called this Membership Sunday. I'm, I'm a little less enamored with that name than I used to be. Uh, membership in America has so many uh, hidden, it has so much baggage with it. Uh, let me put it that way. Because we, we think membership implies a certain amount of privilege. And, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being a part of a family. Actually, that's my, that's my favorite expression. Uh, not membership, not, not even partnership, although partnership's a lot better word than membership because we partner together in the work. It's, I want to be a part of this local family. 
now, you know, you, you, you may say, well, <clears throat> I'm a part of the body of Christ global. Do I have to be a part of a local congregation? Well, I guess you don't have to be, but I sure think you're missing the boat if you aren't. Um, I, I think that you will always feel sort of on the outside. Uh, sometimes people will say, who, who aren't officially a part of the, who've never said, I want this to be my church home. Sometimes people say, well, I go to your church. I attend your church as if this is my church. It's, it's not my church. It's not your church. I know what they're saying. I, I, I'm not officially a part of the membership in that church. I go to that church. But once you become identified with this, once you say, you know, okay, I want to be a part of this church family, then you know what people say? That's my church. That's my church. Do, do you hear the difference? Do you hear the enthusiasm? I go to your church. That's my church. There's just something psychologically that, that is uplifting uh, uh, about that. It makes us feel like we belong. And that's an important feeling. Let, let me put it this way. <clears throat> Indiana University dominates a whole lot of Bloomington life. And, and well, it should. And I, and I have, through the years, loved taking advantage of so much that IU offers. I mean, the great sporting events. There's events at the IU Auditorium. There's, there's great restaurants in, in, in the Union. There's all kinds of things to do with, from museums to just you name it and I IU has, has received it. But in a group of IU alumni, I, I don't quite belong. I am not a graduate of IU. Now, I am a, a college graduate. I, I also have a post-college degree. I've got an undergraduate and a graduate degree. So I'm a part of that big umbrella of people who have gone to college. But I didn't go to IU. Okay, so when I'm with IU alumni, I, I, I don't quite fit. My wife, my daughters, my two sons-in-laws all have degrees from Indiana University. I've written more tuition checks than I care to remember. I even sing the fight song when we go to the games. But I don't quite belong because I'm not a graduate. Now that nobody makes me feel like an outsider. It's just that it's been my choice. I could choose to go back to IU and get a degree. I probably won't do that. But that would be what's available to me, you see. So you may feel the same way. I'm a part of the body of Christ, but I don't really fit quite yet because I've never said this is my church home. Nobody intentionally makes you feel like an outsider. It's your choice. And here's the cool thing. You can't choose your physical family, but you can your spiritual. And that's a neat thing. And we're inviting you to say, please choose us. We want you to be at home here. And with a choice, you can make all that a reality. Well, I've borrowed the sermon title this morning from a rather famous speech. Do you recognize its origin? Anybody here recognize the origin? No. <laughs> oh, that was just verbalized for everybody. I'm assuming I didn't hear any. Well, it, it, is, a, it is a phrase from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It comes from the very last sentence uh, when Lincoln went to um, set aside that area after the battle that was a turning point in the Civil War to bring us back as a united nation. I'm just going to read one part of that last sentence. It says that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure 
of devotion. We would do well as Americans to remember those who laid down their lives at that battle and so many others to preserve us as a nation. We would do well as Christians to remember the ancient church and those predecessors in our faith, many of whom laid down their lives so that we might have the faith today. We are present in this place. We are the, we are the recipients of the faith that they have given to us through the generations. And we need to be devoted. The last full measure of devotion in our lives should be that long after we are gone and have passed into eternity, that the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the generations to come will be the recipients of our faith and our faithfulness. So we have an invitation in Romans chapter 12 <clears throat> of how to do that. And it begins with this first invitation. Worship with us. Worship with us. Romans 12, 1 begins like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, our response to God's mercy, Paul says, is this is your spiritual act of worship. And spiritual worship immediately puts us into the mind of what we do as we gather in this place. If somebody says, what's worship to you? You'd probably say, what's well, what we do on Sunday morning inside the walls of the church building when we gather and we sing, we take communion. We do. Okay, that is one simple aspect of worship, but that's not the aspect that, that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about participating in worship. He's talking about living out our worship. And the word here for spiritual is, is better translated reasonable or logical. And so if we're really going to take a, a look at this passage again, we might understand it better if we said it this way. In light of what God in his mercy did for us, our life of worship is the only logical and reasonable response. God calls us to a life of worship, to live in such a way that we're always pointing to the Father. And then Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The word offer is a really interesting word here too. It's the equivalent idea of making a reservation for a table at a restaurant. Now, that means one thing to us as Americans. It means something else to, to others. Here in America, if you make a reservation at a restaurant, you'll go in, you'll have your meal, you'll pay your bill, and then what, what's the expectation? Get up, leave the restaurant. Somebody else needs this table. There's a line outside, right? Okay, we understand that, and that's pretty much our culture. But when I was teaching uh, in, in Europe for uh, TCM, um, I learned that there's an altogether different understanding there. When you make a reservation in a restaurant there in, in, in Vienna, Austria area, it, it's yours for the whole, whole evening. A, a, a family or uh, uh, friends will make a reservation. They, I don't know what time it starts. It doesn't matter. They've got that table for the rest of the night. They can stay there until the restaurant closes. That table is solely theirs for the whole time. Now, that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. He says, our lives need to be reserved, not just for a short period of time or a convenient period of time, but our lives need to be completely reserved for Jesus Christ, to offer, to reserve our lives for him as a living sacrifice. That's a great picture of transformation. 
And why does this text encourage us to offer our bodies instead of offer your minds or offer your spirits? People, it's because you cannot separate them. What you do in your body affects your mind and your spirit, your emotions, and your social relationships. We are one person. You, you can't divide it out. What you do in your mind affects your body. What you do in your spirit affects your body and your mind. You see, we are one person. God breathed into Adam the, uh, the, the breath of life and he became a living soul. We are one. This is who we are. Paul says much the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that your body, your body, not your brain, not your spirit, but your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Isn't it interesting? Our physical body is the home of the Spirit of God. And then he says, do not be conformed. Another good picture. He said, but be transformed. Let your mind be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Our grandkids love to play with Play-Doh. And uh, so we have Play-Doh at the house, and, and we've got all these different kinds of molds. Some of them look like cookie cutters. Others are you push the Play-Doh into it, and you take it out, and it looks like a cluster of grapes, or it looks like an animal or something like that. You know what I'm talking about. Kids love to play with that. Your life and my life is like a container of Play-Doh, but it will not, it will not remain shapeless. It will get pressed into some mold of our choosing. We will either conform to the world, we'll be pressed into the world's mold so that we become a reflection of the world, or we'll be transformed and we will become a reflection of God. We started out in the very beginning as an image and reflection of God, made in the image of God. Jesus came to redeem us so that we would remain a reflection of God, but we have the choice of whether or not we will be, bear his image or we will bear the image of the world. Do you realize that in all of creation, in all of creation, we are the only ones to have a choice as to whether or not we'll live that way? That everything else in creation bears the stamp of the creator. Let me give you an example. Two weeks ago, our crab apple tree was in full bloom and the, just loaded with white blossoms. And if you got close to the tree, if you stood underneath the tree, you could hear it buzz. Absolutely scores of honeybees were swarming that tree Soaking up this smorgasbord of pollen. I, I was really, I, I wondered, where will these bees take that? Where is their hive? What kind of honey will be made from all of this? You see, when we think of honeybees, first thing that comes to my mind is honey. Boy, that delectable good stuff. But that's not the foundation of the hive. It's the honeycomb. That's the foundation. I am utterly fascinated with what happens when it comes time to develop the hive. To make the wax for the honeycomb, the young bees huddle together for up to 24 hours until the hive temperature reaches 80 degrees. Tiny wax flakes from the pocket-like glands on their abdomens begin to produce the wax, which the bees scrape off, and then they chew it into pliable wax pellets and place it at the base of the foundation sheet for the honeycomb. A second bee takes over, begins to shape it. A third bee finishes the process, and all of that work is happening throughout the hive in total darkness while the workers are upside down, hanging to the bee above them. And it all fits together. 
The finished product is in the optimal shape of a hexagon, and its strength is such that a little over two pounds of beeswax can hold up to 50 pounds of honey. And the honeycomb is set at an exact 11% angle to keep the honey from rip dripping out of the hexagonal shape. It is simply amazing. And here's the thing. Chemists know the ingredients that are in the wax, but they cannot duplicate the beeswax. Utterly amazing. I wish I could go into a whole lot more detail. I don't have the time to do that. And the honey that is produced, honey for all of its joy and its sweetness, is an antiseptic. It hastens the healing of physical wounds. It is a natural moisturizer, which is why it's used in ointments and some makeups. It provides the minimal, mi minerals and the vitamins that are found in the pollen of the plant from which the honey is made. And the darker the honey, the more antioxidants it contains. You can't look at that process and not see the stamp of God's incredible image all over that. And no honeybee says, I'm going to change this. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to discard. I'm going to delete my God imprint. I, I'm, I'm, going to do, I'm going to figure out something else. We're not going to make honey anymore. Bees can't do that. They, they are locked into this God imprint design. We are the only ones who can say, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to look like God. I don't want to act like the Father. I don't want to be a reflection of him. We witnessed once again this week. Tim's already referred to it. Let me just refer to it again. We witnessed again this week the tra in the tragic school shooting, the personification of evil. Nothing in that action reflects the image of God. The shooter has been pressed into an evil mold by his own choice. The shooter has rejected any kind of a reflection of God by his own choice. You see, we're the only ones of creation who can say, I will not worship and reflect our God. So what does your life reflect? Better yet, who does your life reflect? Is everything that you do an act of worship before the Father? Here's the second invitation. It is grow with us. And it starts in verse 3. For, the, by the, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. The phrase, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, reminds us that we have a moral obligation to be a team player in the church. You see, this isn't all about me. This isn't all about you. This is about the body of Christ. And Paul makes it clear that everything Jesus died for will come to nothing if we don't work and serve and live together as a well-oiled machine. Or, in his words, a harmonious body where the organs work together. Now, I'm convinced that none of us really want to face the challenges and stresses of life all by ourselves. 
And no one understood that better than God. He established his body in this church to be a relational place. I mean, after all, God is relational. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God is in relationship with himself and with us. We have important talents and abilities to offer. We all also have quirks and oddities. You know that, don't you? Okay, thank you. <laughs> and the problem is most of the time we don't even recognize our quirks and oddities. But if you have people that will love you, they'll tell you about your quirks and your oddities. And here's the thing. Family has to get along with both. You accept the good. You accept the not so good because everybody has the same, same thing. We all have good and we all bring talents. We also bring our quirks into the family. But family longs to get along with each other and build relationally. And you say, well, we've got, we've got a really good purpose statement. We've talked about that. We've got great values. Uh, we talked about those. But how do we know if we're actually accomplishing these things? That's a really good question. So we have measures. Okay, and these are the measures. They're printed in your bulletin, by the way. Save that bulletin and, and use these measures. Christ's influence in my daily spiritual walk. And ask these questions. What have I done today to be more like Jesus? How am I giving others grace as Christ has me? Who has heard about God's work in my life? Now, how we answer these questions, folks, doesn't determine our salvation, but it does serve as a barometer on the impact of God's grace coming out of our lives. Are our minds really being transformed? Are we being renewed day by day in the spirit of Christ? Recently, we asked you to do a survey. And thank you for all of you who took time to do the survey. Some of you did it here. Some of you did it later at home. About 1,500 surveys were accomplished. That's, that's absolutely awesome. And here's the good news, that out of that 1,500, we found that nearly 54% of our church say they have a one life. Now, there may be more, but that's just out of the surveys. 54% of our church have a one life. That means out of the 1,500 surveys, approximately 800 people somewhere in this area, in this community, in this region are being prayed for, are being built up with relationships, are being encouraged that somebody has said, this person is who I will do my best to reach with the gospel. In that survey, it also showed that 63% of those who took the survey have spoken openly about their faith with someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus Christ within the last six months. 41% of that group said they've done so in the last month. Now, do we have room for growth? Well, absolutely we do. But I am greatly encouraged by the fact that there are 800 people out there that are going to get an image, a picture of Jesus Christ from somebody who said, that person is going to be my one life, and I'm going to share my life and faith with him or her. That is awesome news. Here's, here's some of the other measures. Christ's influence in me at home, work, and play. In other words, how have I engaged my family spiritually today? How am I serving and connecting with my neighbors? How is my life affecting my everyday environment? So do, do you ask yourselves these questions? Or Christ's influence in my community and world. Whom am I mentoring and who is mentoring me? Who are you helping and who's helping you? How am I joining God in his work around me? How am I furthering God's purposes? These measures are not intended to be a grade card. They are intended to be a guide to keep us growing stronger all the time. So who by God's grace are we helping, mentoring, challenging, lifting up in prayer, and encouraging? Because you see... 
We are invited to grow together in a relationship. All right, last thing real quickly is connect with us. And the last part of Romans 12 gives us this great picture. Now, because God is a relational God, we are relational people created in his image, which is why, folks, being in a life group is so important. I don't know how many of you are, but I know some of you aren't, and I think it's really vital that you are. Here's the deal. If you don't connect in a life group, or you don't connect, you say, well, a life group just doesn't work for my schedule. It doesn't work for me. Okay, then we got lots of different Bible studies that go on here on a regular basis. Some in the morning, some's in the evening. We have Bible studies that go on on Sunday morning at, at the hours that the church is going on here. All I'm telling you this, this morning is that you need to connect because if you don't, when the bottom falls out of your life, nobody will know that it falls out of your life, especially if you don't let us know. You'll fall through the cracks. And nobody wants that to happen. And so when you are in a life group, or something like that. It gets you connected with people who will be at your side in the tough moments of life. When you aren't, when you aren't in something like that, you are disconnected. And let me tell you, disconnect creates problems. John Carlson relates an experience with a lousy restaurant meal and a somewhat disconnected waitress. When she asked him if everything was okay, he said, no. He said, the chicken is so tough you can't cut it with a knife. And she said, I'm sorry, I'll get you another knife. That misses the point. But when you're disconnected, you'll miss the points. When you're disconnected in the body of Christ, you'll fall through the cracks. And, and nobody will miss you uh, unless you let us know what's going on so that we can help. And we want to help. Connecting with others begins with an inward transformation. And that inner transformation needs to spiritual growth. And that growth leads us to connect with one another. Now, motives are not always obvious, but actions are clearly visible. And that's why Jesus had so much to say about how we connect. They're always action words. He said, go the second mile, turn the other cheek, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help the needy, so on. And that's why Jesus was so hard on the hypocrites, the people whose lives did not reflect their words. As a matter of fact, hypocrisy is the greatest insult to our faith and to our attempts to be a positive influence on others. Nobody likes a hypocrite. But on the other hand, it can be a convenient excuse for some people. You know how it goes, don't you? I don't go to church because of the hypocrites. Okay. I shop at Walmart with hypocrites. I attend ball games with hypocrites. We eat at restaurant with hypocrites right at the next table. Isn't it hypocritical to say you won't go to church because of the hypocrites when you'll eat and do everything else with the hypocrites around you? I think it is. Zig Ziglar once invited a friend to go to church with him. The man answered and said, well, I'd like to go, but the church is so full of hypocrites. Ziglar said, well, that's okay. There's room for one more. <laughs> He's right. There isn't one, us, uh, one among us that isn't in some ways to some degree a bit hypocritical the church isn't perfect it's filled with all kinds of broken people yeah we got hypocrites not because we want them but all of us are in some form of fashion just just don't use that as an excuse not to connect in the body of christ and and make sure and make sure nobody can use you as that excuse for not connecting and that's why paul writes this last section it begins in verse 9, 
with this phrase, love must be sincere. Now, I think that's the key phrase of this last section, and I think everything else that we read after that describes what it means that love is sincere. So let me, let, let me read it. This, this, is, this is just beautiful stuff. Verse 9, love must be sincere. So, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, here's the bottom line. None of that needs explanation. That is easily understood. What it needs is application. And that's the hard part. That's the hard part. But when we apply this to our lives, when we begin to live like this, it shows the world that we are being a living sacrifice, transformed by the renewing of our mind, not conformed or pressed into the world's mold. And that's who we are. This is us. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.